Folletta Investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Folletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcisllc.com. The purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country. Here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it. See you in October. Okay, everyone, I want to welcome you to our show called Forlet Investigates, and uh, you've been now listening to a series of them, and I hope that you're enjoying them and you're being educated as we talk to former law enforcement, especially some DEA agents uh, that risked their lives for our country. Uh, my guest today is Kelly McCullough. He's a former and retired DEA agent, I should say. And he was uh, in the DEA Air Wing. And probably a lot of people don't know much about the DEA Air Wing and how vital it is to the mission of DEA, whether it's surveillance conducted within the United States or overseas, uh, the transport of prisoners and agents all over the world. So I want to welcome today our guest, Kelly McCollum. Kelly, welcome. Thank you very much. So, Kelly, as we begin our show today, I want to educate a lot of people about the DEA Air Wing. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your background and, and how you became an agent and how you decided to go to the Air Wing. All right. I got my master's degree from Baylor University August of 67. And uh, at that time, I was, uh, in, I was a grocery manager for a supermarket here in San Antonio, and being low man on the totem pole of the of the managers, uh, my job was six days a week in the store. Plus, back then it was closed on Sunday, so I would have to go in and check all the refrigeration. So <clears throat> my wife had uh, our son; he was young, and a, a newborn daughter. And she said, "Why don't you get a government job?" where you work five days a week, 40 hours, and you have all the vacation and holidays off. I said, okay, I'll do that. So I took the civil service exam and kept getting inquiries from the Social Security Administration and the federal bank examiners. And none of that sounded interesting, but then I got an inquiry from a thing called Bureau of Drug Abuse Control. And I said, hmm, I don't know what they do, so I'll look into it. And they said, you're hired. So <laughs> I was uh, shipped off to D.C. for the basic basic school and uh, told my first duty would be at, in Dallas, Texas. So I bid goodbye to my wife and the two little kids and said, I'll see you in Dallas in three months. So <laughs> that's how it started. And my wife has always regretted the decision for me to get a, a government job 40 hours a week because it didn't turn out yeah. that way. Yeah, it didn't exist the 40 hours of the work week. <laughs> no way. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
But it was her fault. Yeah, I see. So, well, anyways, your first assignment was in the uh, Dallas office? Yeah, Dallas uh, Bureau of Drug Abuse Control. It was under the, it had just been created like maybe 12 months before under the Food and Drug Administration. And we were tasked uh, just to uh, do criminal investigations and and compliance investigations of licensed drug companies to enforce those laws. The main reason that was created was because of the LSD and the and the, those kind of drugs that were becoming very popular during that time. Right. So how long were you assigned to the Dallas office? Uh, I stayed there until April. Uh, let's see. Uh, I think April. And uh, the guys had an office in Tulsa. And since I've been working pretty successfully undercover in Dallas, they wanted me up there. So they uh, influenced the boss to send me to Tulsa. So we moved up there and I started working undercover between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. What kind of investigations were you doing? Uh, well, it started out with with the uh, pills, you know, amphetamines being sold in the black market, and uh, and LSD and and those kinds of drugs. But uh, it soon got into being marijuana, which at that time the Federal Bureau of Narcotics did not appreciate us getting involved with. So is what precipitated the creation of BNDD was to uh, take care of that little problem. But yeah, I was working undercover uh, for pills and marijuana, LSD, and uh, even even the heroin trade there in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. But I just kind of ran the gambit of the whole spectrum of drugs at that time. I was, uh, I've always looked younger than my age and I worked. I was pretty successful undercover because I looked instead of looking 27, I looked more like I was 19 or 18 or 19. So that uh, that worked pretty good. And uh, we were always we had informants that that knew about the drug trafficking in Tulsa and Oklahoma City and the Oklahoma University. And uh, there was a, just a lot of LSD and marijuana at that time up in that part of the country. Right, I understand. So, how long did you um, work undercover? Now, I, I take it that uh, BND eventually was merged into DEA. Is that right? That's correct. That was in uh, what seventy seventy seven, maybe. Well, it was through Richard Nixon. Uh, He's the one uh-huh. who created it. It was in the 70s. Yeah. So you're in Tulsa. How long did you stay in Tulsa for? Stayed in Tulsa until, uh, uh, let's see, 69. And uh, after we merged the BNDD, the, the, the former FBN guys and uh, the regional head, regional director was in Dallas. He didn't particularly want the old BDAC guys working without the former FBI, FBN supervision. So he transferred uh, me and another agent from Tulsa to Oklahoma City, where the original FBN office was. 
And so I just continued doing the same thing in Oklahoma City. We had uh, we had just wrapped up a, a really good conspiracy investigation of all the, I say all, most of the heroin dealers in Tulsa. And so then we just started uh, then doing the same thing in Oklahoma City. And we were very successful over a couple of years of pretty much drying up the heroin business in Oklahoma City. Where, where was the heroin coming from at that time? It was coming from, from Dallas and Los Angeles. One part of the Oklahoma City operation and Tulsa were getting it from their sources in L.A. And then some of them were getting it from Dallas. And one of them was actually getting it direct from Mexico. So was it black tar heroin back then? Uh, it was brown. It was brown. It wasn't. It, it was more refined than the black tar. Okay. So then DEA comes into play. Now, did you have to do any retraining or anything, or did they just uh, use whatever the experience that you had gathered in training? Yeah, there was no retraining at all. We just. It was just kind of like you changed badges and right. moved on. Yeah, and I was, I was in. Uh, transferred from Oklahoma City to San Antonio in August of 71. So that's where I was when the DEA was was made. Now, were you working undercover in San Antonio also? Uh, no, not so much. I was working because of my background in conspiracy investigations in Oklahoma. I was put in charge of a heroin investigation in San Antonio. It was... Uh, the heroin was really a problem at that time. They were getting, one organization was getting pure white heroin from France and one was getting it directly from Mexico. And the, there were some, lots of overdoses because of the competition. They weren't cutting it. They weren't diluting it very much. And uh, so that's that's what we were working on then mainly during that period of time. Do you recall the organization's names that were tied in from Mexico and France? Yeah, one the guy that was getting it from Mexico was Fred Carrasco. And the guy that was getting it from his connections in France was uh, Jesse Santoy. And Fred Carrasco was, was pretty noto- notorious because in the end, he was in the state prison in Huntsville, Texas. And he was able, through his wife, able to get a pistol and was able to get hostages in the library. And they had a standoff. And as I recall, uh, I'm trying to think if he was killed, but there were some fatalities because there was no way they were going to let him out of the out of the prison. And then you mentioned that there was heroin coming from France. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, that was a uh, Jesse Santoy had a, a connection with a a man in uh, Louisiana called Frenchy. That's the only name I remember him by, and he had a connection with a Frenchman. And uh, how he found out about it was, <clears throat> I guess I don't know if it was his first load, but anyway, one of his loads got. Uh, found coming across the border in Laredo, the heroin, I forget the amount, but it was maybe like 20 or 30 kilos were hidden inside a spare tire. Wow. Hmm. And uh, then that 
the information from, from that and the guy that was driving the car, we were able to to find out that he were how he was getting the white heroin. Were you able to trace it back to France itself? Yes. We were through telephone tolls and travel documents and and uh, we were able to trace it because uh, they were just using the telephones wide open and and left a pretty good paper trail. And we were able to figure it out and I forget now exactly how we identified the guy in France. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, as far as I know, we were never able to, to capture him, but we got uh, Santoy and and, uh, and Frenchie from Louisiana. We got them tried and convicted. So France at one time, as we all know about the French connection, uh, was, was a uh, source for heroin throughout the United States. Isn't that right? Yes, and this was back in uh, 71, 72, and 73 is when this happened. Right. So that would have been about the right time when uh, yeah. the United States was being inundated with heroin from France. Yeah, and the Mexicans were, were competing pretty well against them mm. also. So I take it the purity level was, was pretty high back then because of the overdose deaths taking place. Yes, it was real high. They were. Uh, they were, I think, as I recall, somebody was as strong as 60 or 70%. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty high. Yeah. For sure. Now, how long did you continue to work drug investigations in San Antonio? During the, the 70s, I got my private pilot's license and uh, started filling in for the full-time uh, special agent pilot when he was gone TDY while well, I would I would fly the local air-to-ground surveillance missions, and then eventually, eventually he transferred to Miami, and so I came on full time in Air Wing in latter part of 1980, and then I started uh, mainly at that time was you know air-to-ground surveillance, following cars around, and uh, right was able you know was able to to help the street guys out a lot. Uh, following these guys around because we were always, you know, doing doing undercover buys and, uh, right. and trying to trying to follow the money, you know, back to the source, that kind of thing. So the airplane came in real handy at that time. Sometimes, a few times I'd fly like eight hours a day. Or sometimes, you know, the our investigations go. They kind of what we call a hummer. They would hum on, and then finally would happen. <laughs> Well, I, I can certainly tell you that in my career, I used the air wing uh, a lot and uh, the success that we had, you know, with the pilots um, in helping us uh, track uh, the uh, the sources and, and so on. And it made it easier, I guess, to a certain extent on surveillances, because as you and I both know that these the criminal element are always, you know, doing counter surveillance and always looking for, uh, you know, the vehicles that uh, don't fit or, you know, they see them more than once. And and I think that was always an advantage for us to stay back and let you guys do most of the work. Yeah. One time at all that I'll never forget is undercover guy met, met and made his, his uh, meat. And then the, the guy he bought from, Oh no! Actually, I'm <laughs> He did. 
the undercover agent did the, the no-no. He fronted the money. Oh, right? yeah. Remember those days? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he fronted the money. And so we followed, after he fronted the money, we followed the bad guy, and he went over into an industrial park that had been developed but not built upon. So it was just wide open right. with paved streets. And he met this guy, and my observer with his binoculars actually saw the hand-to-hand the money went into the source, and the source took out the heroin, and the heroin, that guy brought the heroin back to UC. So in court, they called me up for to testify, and the defense attorney said, Agent McCullough, how did you, how did you see this transaction takes place, and how far away were you? And I said, 4,000 feet. <laughs> <laughs> How do you know it was four thousand feet? <laughs> so uh, I'll never forget that. Yeah. <laughs> so now you're in the air wing. You're doing those surveillances, and um, I know pilots uh, eventually begun to do some undercover work, and uh, you know, mainly going in to foreign countries, and you know, doing deliveries and and so on. So tell us a little bit about. Um, how you got into the undercover side of being a pilot? Uh, Not very much, although it happened quite a bit. Uh, We did have some of our pilots actually fly, and and probably uh, Mike Mike Levine, is that his name that you've had on previously? Yes. Mm -hmm. The undercover? Yep. It was, uh, I think it was his case where they flew a, a uh, conveyor, a twin-engine, big twin-engine, radial-engine airplane into Bolivia. Right, that's my excuse. And pick up a load of coke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, they did stuff like that, but mainly mine was they would use uh, some of our executive-type airplanes just, and they would put a camera in it and wire it up, and then they'd look, have the bad guys come into the airplane where they would think they were you know, not being seen by anybody and, right. mm-hmm. and do negotiations that way. But uh, we used them quite a bit that way. And we'd, we would haul uh, the undercover people and a bad guy, like to fly them to Miami to meet with the source there mm-hmm. and negotiate. Right. Things like that. Right. It's a, a great prop, as I call it. Great undercover prop. Yeah. Eventually, we got a, actually got two Learjets, so that right. that really was impressive yes. for the bad guys. For sure. So, did you get started in doing aerial reconnaissance overseas? Yes, we did. We had some operations. One of them was Operation Bat, which was the Bahamas, where we would uh, we were assisting the the strike force, the Bahamian strike force, there taking them to all the various little islands that they had jurisdiction over, uh, transporting them. And also occasionally customs would, uh, would get information that a smuggling airplane was coming up from Columbia and, uh, they would hand them over to us and we'd follow them to the strip on one of the islands in the Bahamas or where they airdrop them, airdrop the load to go fast boats. So we did a little bit of that for in the Bahamas. Plus they had another operation called uh, Trumpa, 
which was to catch, uh, trying to catch loads coming off of the Colombian coast and coming up through uh, past uh, Haiti and Cuba and up through that way into the Bahamas and to South Florida. So we would, uh, the first, first one I did after the Bahamas was uh, we were based at, in Guantanamo Bay and we would take off and and uh, fly the passage there between Haiti and and Cuba, where 90% of the of the boatloads would come would have to come through, and we would just go out and with our radar try to pick up on on uh, ships and vessels that were bringing loads up out of Colombia. And uh, one time flying out of Guantanamo, we went over a uh, probably like a 50 foot what it looked like a fishing boat, lobster boat or something like that. And it had, you know, had 50 gallon drums in the back of it for their extra fuel. And it flew down low over at first pass to get the, the name off of it and then came back and the guys were out on the front of it waving an American flag like, we don't know anything. We don't, we're not bad. We're Americans. Right. So we called the Coast Guard, called the Coast Guard. And uh, they found it there going through the pass and it had, had a load of marijuana on it. Mm-hmm. So did you actually get assigned to Columbia itself or were you still working through the air wing? No, it was a, it was a temporary duty. Okay. So you're it on. It was a temporary duty there. Yeah. Okay. So you're on TD, a lot of TDY missions. Yes. Yeah. So now I uh, want to go to a little bit. Um, Charlie Martinez was another agent. And and a uh, I guess another agent was he also a pilot? Yes. Okay. So were you guys kind of working together as partners? Yes, we were. We had we he was stationed in Miami and I was still in San Antonio, so we had not had the opportunity to meet before this before this TDY assignment came up. And the reason it came up is because they had been flying out of Aruba, but. Because in, and flying along the north coast of Columbia to try to pick up on the boats, but the distance was so far that they would to do their patrol, they'd have to land in Barranquilla to refuel mm-hmm. before they could get back to Aruba. So they they uh, decided to try basing out of Cartagena, and that and Charlie and I were the first ones to uh, to try that out. And so, how was that working out? <laughs> well, it worked out good for a few days. We got there on the 4th of February of 82. And we, when we flew uh, both coasts we, for a few days. And uh, on all, all of our multi-engine airplanes, we had HF single-side band radios so that we could communicate. So every day we would we would check in with our dispatcher, you know, and tell him where we we're going. And so that if something happened, they would know you know where we where we were last. We'd try to make sure that the, our dispatcher knew our location and where we were going and how long we'd be out. So one day, on while we were patrolling, uh, a dispatcher said to call the, the Bogota DEA office. So when we got back on the ground, Charlie called and talked to someone there in the Bogota country office. And they said that they had information that two fugitives 
from Miami were staying in the same hotel we were and asked Charlie to, uh, to determine if this was true. So I, let me preface this. I do not speak Spanish, so we kind of keep that in context, context as I tell the story. Anyway, so so Charlie goes to who he thinks is the hotel manager, and uh, the, one of the guys that he was inquiring about was Renee Benitez, and I don't re remember the name of the other one. So he went to the who he thought was the hotel manager and asked him to check and see if, if he was staying there. And a couple of days went by, and and uh, Charlie didn't hear anything from him. I think, I think actually Charlie went back and asked him again, but I never got any information about it. So on uh, the night of uh, April the 9th and 10th, about 12.30 a.m. on the 10th, let uh, me back up and give you a, a blueprint of where we were staying. We're on the upper floor of the Don Blas Hotel, and we had a kind of a suite with adjoining bedrooms and a little parlor kitchen thing. Anyway, back to go back to where I started, heard a banging on Charlie's door at his room, real loud, 12.30 at night. And I went in there, and Charlie woke up, and he went to the door and said something in Spanish and some talking. And, uh, of course, both of us were concerned. Kind of a, you know, a strange going on. So he ran into my room and opened the door and quickly slammed it shut. And he said, there were some guys out there with guns. And so they came to my door, of course, and started banging on it. And he kept, was talking to them in Spanish. He went to the phone and called uh, the hotel operator to ask that the police be sent. And the operator, he said the operator wouldn't do it, but sent up some security, hotel security up. So Charlie went back to my door and kept talking. And then there was a, an ID slipped under the door and Charlie picked it up. He said it was a Colombian National Police ID because that's what they'd been telling him. They, they, were, they were police. And so... And he kept talking, and he, and he said, determined that there were some security people outside and that they were police. So really not having an option because they were they were going to come in one way or the other. And we did not. We were unarmed. So Charlie opened the door, and four or five guys came in carrying guns, and the, the security people were there. And the, and the guys in civilian clothes quickly told the security guards to get lost, and they left. So one guy later later identified as Jose Duarte, who was supposedly the federal policeman, took Charlie into his bedroom and wanted to ask him why he was why he was asking about Rene Benitez. And Charlie told him who we were, DEA, and just just inquiring about if he was there in the hotel and then the other guys had been watching me in, in my part of the room and this other guy came in carrying a, a 380 automatic pushed me up against the wall searched me and then went into Charlie's room and 
started telling Charlie that I'm Renee Benitez and this is the only law in Columbia. And uh, so after some more talking back and forth, they told me to get dressed. And I did. And but we were going down to police headquarters for further talking, for further questions. So they took us out of the room and we went to the elevator. And there were some guys there by the elevator. And Renee asked one of them, is this them? And the guy said, shook his head, no. And then they took us on into the elevator down to the lobby and through, and through the lobby and everybody there, the security guards, the desk people, everybody just watched us walk by being taken out at gunpoint. And they, uh, there was a car parked right outside the door, and it was a little Russian-made, what they call Lada, a little two-door, four-wheel drive thing. It has a bucket seats in the front. And so uh, they put me and I'm, I'm thinking of his name now, another guy, in the, another bad guy in the back, and they put Charlie straddling the, the gear shift console and uh, Duarte, Jose Duarte, the ex-policeman, was driving, and Renee was in the passenger seat. And they started driving us out. They finally wound up in a suburb. And uh, Charlie and Renee were arguing back and forth, and all of a sudden the gun went off. Bam! And Charlie said they shot me. And I. Uh, I said, what's, I asked the guy in the back who spoke a little English, I said, what's going on? What's happening? He says, oh, we're, we're going to take him to the hospital. It was an accident. So we drive out of Cartagena, out in the country, and we go past this little village called Turbaco. And along the highway there, in bright neon, bright neon letters was Clinica. And I knew enough Spanish to know that that was at least, you know, an emergency room. I said, well, let's stop here. And they shook their heads no and kept going. Out in the country, about three miles out of the out of Turbaco. And they stopped alongside the road in the dark. And Duarte got out of his side and Renee got out of his. And Charlie kind of, you know, eased himself he was in a lot of pain but eased himself off of that gear shift console and sat on the seat with his feet just outside and they were arguing back and forth and charlie looked back at me and said partner they're going to kill us and so i started pushing the, the driver's side bucket seat so i could get out and dorothy kept pushing me back and then i looked over at charlie and Benitez had the pistol pointed directly at Charlie's head. And at that point, somehow I was able to, to get out and grab for uh, Dorothy's 45. It was stuck inside his belt, but he had one of those old Banlon shirts on and I, and I couldn't get a grip. So about the time that I missed the pistol and my feet hit the ground, I heard Charlie scream and a gun go off. So I take off running back up toward Turbaco. I went into the ditch to try to jump the fence and I couldn't, you know, kind of to hide out in the woods there. 
and uh, couldn't get over the fence, so I kept on running down the bar ditch, and Duarte started shooting at me. I don't know how many shots, but I tripped on some of the foliage, was able to get back up, and, and I guess Duarte was close enough at that point. He shot me, shot me in the knee and the right buttocks, and that, that knocked me down. And as I, as I was trying to raise back up, Dorothy stood right over me and, and shot me. And so I went back on the ground, and I figured the coup de grace is next, but nothing happened. So I don't know if I don't know if I was lost consciousness or what, but anyway, I finally looked up and there was nobody there. So I got up. I saw some lights out in the woods, so I got over the fence at that point and went to the house. <clears throat> Let me get a drink to try to get help. <clears throat> and I knocked on the door, and the guy met me at the door holding a gun. And in Spanish and motioning, he I was supposed to hit the road. He didn't want any point of, didn't want any part of my action. So I went back out on the road, started running up the bar ditch. Every time a car would come by either direction, I'd jump down the ditch and hide until they got past. And I finally saw another house on up the road, jumped over the gate, went to the door, the lady answered the door, but she didn't speak English and couldn't help me, so I left. Finally got back into Turbaco and saw a steeple of a church upright, kind of in the middle of town. So I got to the church and knocked on the door and the lady came to the came to the door, didn't speak English until a priest arrived. And I was able to communicate with him pretty much and told him what had happened and that I needed to get a doctor and a policeman to go back out and see if there's anything I could do, help Charlie with. Because I figured at that point, he's either dead or, or badly wounded from the last thing that I saw and heard. So the priest got his little car out of the garage, and we went to the to the police station and picked up a policeman and went to the clinic, picked up the doctor, and off we went back down the road. So when we got to the location, we got out of the car, started calling Charlie's name, and the policeman and I walked walked up toward in the direction of tobacco and the priest and the doctor walked up the other way all of us calling his name and as we, the policeman i kept walking up i saw that the doctor and a priest had gotten back in the car and were driving slowly in the opposite direction up the highway about this time i hear somebody whistling in the dark and it gets closer, and it's Renee Benitez and another guy. And when Benitez sees me, he becomes infuriated, pulls out his gun and starts pointing, running toward me and pointing it at me. So I get, <clears throat> I get behind the policeman, poor guy, and you know, jabbering in English, still trying to tell him that's the guy that tried to kill us. Of course, he didn't know what I was saying, and he didn't know. If I was a bad guy or Renee was a bad guy, 
So he grabbed Renee's gun arm and started guiding him up up the road and motioned for me to hit the road. So off I go again, doing the same drill, walking up the road, jumped in the ditch when a car comes by. And and I finally get back into tobacco. And at this time, as far as being paranoid, I guess, I figured there was I had no friends that I could count on in that part of town. Because I figured that Renee had convinced the policeman and everybody else that I was a bad guy and and he was the policeman or whatever. So I, I entered tobacco from a field and went through the, the slums, little cabins and pigs and dogs in the street and things and finally come to the middle of town where a, a bus is making its round picking up commuters. And I asked the bus driver if he was going to Cartagena and he said, yeah. So I get on the bus and we make our rounds and pick up people for about 30 minutes and then head on into Cartagena. You know, you see, he makes a stop in a, in Cartagena where a taxi stand was. So I get a taxi and tell him to take me to the Hilton. I figured that was the only place I knew of where anybody might speak English and there might be, you know, some help. Mm-hmm. Now, are you wounded? Yeah, I've been... Yeah, I'm dirty and bloody. Okay. <laughs> I'm a sight, I guess, because when I get and I approach the Hilton desk, they look wide-eyed and say, you need to go to a hospital. Right. <laughs> so I said, but I need you to call the U.S. Embassy. And they, would you believe the telephone lines are down? Well, hmm. said, we cannot get long distance right now. And then they say, there's a nice hospital real close. Get in your taxi and go to the hospital. So I did. I get back in the taxi and takes me to the Boca Grande Hospital where they start cleaning me up and seeing where all the holes are. And uh, nobody speaks English until finally, I think it was the doctor or the mayor of Cartagena came in and he spoke English and he said he would call the embassy, which eventually eventually happened. They took me, cleaned me up, and the doctor saw me and <clears throat> put me in a room. And uh, the, uh, I forget now, I guess the, the first American that got a word was the consul, American consul in Barranquilla. And I guess he was able to get a hold of the embassy to start the wheels turning. So anyway, <clears throat> after a couple of hours, there's the local police trying to interview me, and they don't speak English and that kind of thing. And the uh, but no, I know it was a naval attache, the U.S. naval attache there at the Colombian Navy base came in and said. Charlie is in the Naval Hospital, and we're going to transfer you there. And I, I couldn't believe it. Wow. Could not believe it. So, so they transfer me, and, and I see Charlie, and he's he's doing good, and so I can go back now and tell his story. When 
but what I saw and heard was a gun, Renee's gun went off, but somehow Charlie flinched just enough where instead of hitting him in the head, it hit his shoulder. Mm. And it was just kind of a surface wound. The bullet just kind of went in and out. And and then Renee put the gun right on his forehead and pulled the trigger three times and nothing happened. So Charlie, Charlie decides he better drive, do something before this jerk figures out how to clear a weapon. Right. So he pushes his way out and runs into the woods and hides out there all night. And they all three of those guys are looking for him for an hour or two, and he's hiding. So finally they leave, and then he hears me. He hears me calling his name, and he thinks. They've kept that they have kept they have captured me and are forcing me right. to call him out of the wood out of hiding. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't that's why he doesn't respond to our calls. So then when it comes about daylight, he's able to get a, a taxi from from there out in the country to go into the naval hospital in Cartagena. So we uh and then they uh the people from the the Bogota office arrive and start, you know, asking questions and taking notes and checking the hotel and all that kind of thing. And uh, they transfer us via Air Force uh, C-130 to the to the Gorgas Hospital in Panama, where we spend a couple of days. And uh, my wife, because I ever every morning we would take off, I would call her on the HF radio because the dispatcher could could patch me, could, you know, could make a phone call, phone patch. So when she didn't hear from me, she knew something was going on, and then then the San Antonio office got in touch with her and told her what had happened. And Chuck Carter, who was the sack at that time, did an outstanding job. He had. He had her tickets and passage to Cartagena so quick that when she got to Mexico City, they had to stop her because we had been transferred to Panama. So she almost got to Cartagena by the time I got to Panama. Anyway, she finally, uh, she the next day, caught a flight into Panama and, and saw me there in the hospital. That's the story. Well, I guess somebody was uh, looking out for both of you guys in the very dangerous position to yeah. be. And uh, fortunately, you're, you're... Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, our, wasn't our time. Yeah. And uh, the Bogota office and all the other, all the agents that were assigned to that investigation did a heck of a job on following up leads and and uh, catching people and taking statements. And uh, I was back down in Colombia uh, a week later, because they had called Renee's brother, who had been with the gang there in the hotel, Armando, and some other guys, and they had me down there to make a statement before the Colombian judge and to do a lineup. And I was able to identify Armando, but none of the others. So, and they eventually, over the years, several years, all three, all uh, 
four of the people that we were able to identify, the three guys, Renee, Dorothy, and the guy in the back seat with me and Armando have all been brought to American justice over the years. And there's only, I don't know about the guy that's in the back seat with me, but only Renee is still alive. Is Renee still in federal prison? <laughs> yes, he's up again for a parole hearing. I don't know how that's going to go. How long has he been there? Do you know? Uh, let's see. Off and on, he, you know, he, he's he been there since uh, in one prison or another. He went to state prison first for the Miami cocaine case that he was a, a fugitive on. So it would probably be probably 85, maybe. I don't have the report here where they caught him, but mm-hmm. probably since 1985, he's been in and out. He made he made parole on the on the Miami case. Went back into Cartagena, called him and extradited him back, tried him again, and uh, that's why he's still in federal prison. Well, I take it he was charged with attempting to kill two uh, federal agents. Yes. And so now he's been incarcerated since 1985. You said. Yeah, about like that. Right about then, yeah. Off and on, like I say, he did his he did his uh, time on the cocaine case and made parole and went back to uh, Columbia illegally, and that's how we're able to get him kicked out of Columbia and back up here for our trial. Okay, so was he incarcerated in Columbia at the time? Um, just not very long. Just just a matter of days before we were able to get him back to get him extradited on the on the Florida cocaine case and then on ours yeah only attempted murder case yes well uh Kelly that was a, a a very intriguing story that uh you enlighten us about and how dangerous uh DE agents jobs really are I know that uh, you and Charlie were featured on on uh the National Geographic Channel uh, under the uh, Colombian Vice. So, I take it that you guys were both the uh, providing them uh, all the information that they needed to uh, tell your story. Yes, we did, and you know they had professional actors that would do some of the scenes. Yeah, that you're. Listen, I've had some really good guests on here, and. Uh, uh, your story is uh, really chilling to know that uh, both of you survived a, uh, you know, an attempted murder, I should say, of federal agents uh, by these uh, by these criminals, these uh, Colombian drug traffickers, and how violent um, the drug drug world really is. Um, so, uh, in conclusion. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on our show. Uh, it was a very uh, enlightening story. And I guess it's a story of survival and how you've been wounded, how Charlie was wounded, and how you were able to keep your faculties about you. And I think probably a lot of that had to do with training uh, and and so on and experience because the average person would have not made it made it through that type of scenario. So uh, again, Kelly, thanks for coming on, and uh, you take care. 
Uh, thanks for having me, Larry. Forletta Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to FCISLLC.com.